Well, sorry kids about the technical difficulty. I am no substitute for the video that you would have seen. But I'm sure next week everything will work perfectly. So I titled this message, The Tale of Two Cities. If you're familiar with the story, there's one particular individual in the story that I was focusing my attention on when I thought of that. It was an old physician who was imprisoned because he knew some information um, that would put the nobility in very difficult situations. So what they did is they, they put him in prison where, and his secret went with him. So eventually what happens at the beginning of the story is he is set free from prison by his daughter and his financial advisor who lived in London at the time. And so he is transferred from Paris to London, um, now a free man to live in London. Unfortunately, because of the trauma of his uh, stay in Paris and in the prison there in Paris, every so often, even while he was in London, he would, um, let's say, his mind and, and, and his uh, emotions would transfer him back to that old time in, in the prison in France, and he would behave in exactly the same way. He was given the task of a shoemaker when he was in prison, and that's what he would do even in his, his new estate in London, England. He would want to work on his shoes and he wouldn't talk to anyone, and so he basically refer, reverted back to the person he was before. So that's part of the story that I wanted to bring to our attention. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We hear sometimes of a mystery. We hear of mystery stories. Uh, when you think of the term mystery, what do you think? What does it mean to you? For the most part, we think of something unknown or unknowable. A mystery in the Bible is something that is revealed. It's not something that is mysterious. Something that is revealed for the first time in the Old Testament that was not previously revealed in the New Testament. If you turn in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and this is Paul speaking. For this cause, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And now in the next verse, he defines what a mystery is. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. <clears throat> and here's the particular mystery he's talking about in verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ Jesus by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. So that's the mystery that Paul was revealed to Paul, but was not necessarily very well known to everyone else. In verse 2, Paul 
said he was given the dispensation of grace. So I, I thought of it as I was reading that, that he's kind of like a, a grace dispenser. We know what a drink dispenser is. Well, Paul was a grace dispenser to the Gentiles. And, and in, in fact, I guess all of us are grace dispensers whenever we share the gospel with anyone. But um, So Paul was a grace dispenser, but to the Gentiles particularly. And why? Because he understood the mystery of Christ, which was recorded in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the Jews through the gospel. There's other mysteries in the scripture too. There's about 10, I believe, in the New Testament. One that you're very familiar with. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, etc. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, that's a mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but was for the first time revealed in the New. And that's the definition of a mystery. So remember that this truth was not revealed in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was all the scripture that the early church had at this point in Acts chapter 11. So do you think that this lack of understanding of this revealed mystery could have had any effect on the evangelism of the early church? The early church which was directed by the very apostles of Jesus Christ, the same apostles who had been directly told by the Lord Jesus to take the gospel to all nations. In Matthew chapter 28. Let's look closer at Peter's experience in Acts chapter 11. So in Acts chapter 11 verse 1 as we read. It said the apostles and brethren that were in Judea. Heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now considering that the Holy Spirit directed Peter to go. Then I'm sure it was okay for him to go without asking permission of the, of the Jerusalem church. And of course, when they heard that the Gentiles received the gospel, they rejoiced exceedingly like the father who had received his prodigal son back, correct? Is that what verse 2 said? And when Peter was come to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. Who do they sound like? They sound like the older brother. They sound like the older brother who was not very impressed when his younger brother came back and he didn't rejoice at the younger brother's return home. They contended with Peter. How dare you take our gospel to the Gentiles? Why would they contend with him? Saying, you went into men uncircumcised and you did eat with them. So why should they not eat with them? Weren't the apostles told to go and teach all nations? Jesus said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Were they to teach them but not eat with them? Why are they making a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile? Did they not know what Christ had accomplished on the cross? Well, they knew somewhat. And you'll see what I mean when I say somewhat as we go along. They knew how it applied to the Jews. They did not know it applied to the Gentiles. So they must have completely missed the go to all nations part. Or they could have thought Jesus meant go to all nations and preach to the Jews in exile. 
or possibly go to all nations and preach even though they won't believe the gospel. Whatever they thought, it did not involve going to the Gentiles right nearby like Cornelius. So it would be through the Apostle Paul that Jesus would reveal the mystery of Jew and Gentile together in one new body called the church, which we read in Ephesians 3, uh, 1-7. Now the early church at this point did not get it. They did not understand at this point. So now Peter in verse 4 of Acts 11 has to defend himself. He rehearses the whole matter. So Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning, and he expounded it by order to them, in other words, in chronological order, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descend as as a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. Upon which, when I fastened my eyes, I considered, and I saw four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air, and I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay, and eat. But I said, No, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered into my mouth. Now we know that God cannot lie, from Titus 1-2. We know that God does not tempt anyone to sin from James, the book of James. And neither would God direct Peter or anyone to do contrary to his law. With this in mind, what does God's command to Peter imply regarding the Mosaic law? James 2.10 says, Whoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point, he is guilty of all. The Lord just told Peter to violate the Mosaic law. What does God's command to Peter declare regarding the Mosaic law? God is emphatically declaring that the law in its entirety has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ, which is exactly what Jesus said he came to do. Jesus said, I have not come to destroy the law, I have come to fulfill the law. And that's exactly what God is pointing out to him. There is a difference between destroying and fulfilling. This fulfilled law in its entirety is set aside, having served its purpose, and as a complete intact unit, it is now rendered inoperative or abolished or annulled on the basis of Jesus fulfilling all of its righteous demands. And as such, it no longer has authority over the Jews to whom it was given. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and starting in verse 13. Starting in verse 13, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes afar off... That's the Gentiles. They were away from, they were away from God. You were, you were far off. You're, you're made close or you're made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one. That's both Jew and Gentile. He has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. What was the partition between the Jew and the Gentile? The Mosaic law was the partition between the Jew and Gentile. Having abolished... In his flesh, the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. 
For to make in himself of two one new man, that is Jew and Gentile, of those two peoples he has made one new thing, the church. That's what the Lord has done. And so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God, both the Jew and the Gentile, or both reconciled unto God by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentile, and to them that were close by, that's the Jew. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The apostles of the early church had not understood at this point this mystery. Again, turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There are various uh, books in the scripture that deal particularly with this issue of the Mosaic Law and its condition, uh, like the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, of course. At times we are, we are um, led to believe at least that, let's say, the, the Ten Commandments are still in force or something of that nature. Uh, consider carefully what, is, what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves. This is Paul talking about his, uh, his ability as a minister. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who has made us ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter, the letter refers to the Old Testament, but of the Spirit, which refers to the New Testament. For the letter kills, that's the Old Testament, but the Spirit gives life. And so those are the differences, the contrast. You'll notice that in the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are always contrasted. They aren't, they aren't let's say, compared as though they're both the same thing. They're, they're completely different. So if the administration of death, that's the Old Covenant, written and engraven in stones, that's the Ten Commandments. The only, the only scripture I know of, at least, that's engraven in stones. Was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be abolished. How shall not the administration of the Spirit be more glorious? That's the new covenant. For if the administration of condemnation, which is the old covenant, was glorious, much more the administration of righteousness, which is the new covenant, will exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that is greater. For if that which is abolished was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. 
but their minds were blinded, for until this day, there still remains a veil not taken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, when the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Mosaic Law, you will recall, was given to the Jews, it was never given to the Gentiles, and it was never given to the church. It was fulfilled before the church came to be. The inauguration of the church, of course, was in Acts chapter 2. So what dietary restrictions is Peter talking about in Acts 11? The dietary restrictions he refers to are contained in the Old Covenant. So what then is God saying about the status of the Old Covenant at the time here recorded in Acts chapter 11? He's saying that it is, that it is completely fulfilled, and as such it is set aside. It's not broken, it's not destroyed, it's a complete unit, completely fulfilled by the Lord Jesus and set aside for that reason because it's a fulfilled covenant. It would be no different than if you have a contract with someone to purchase a property, say for $100,000 or whatever it happens to be, you provide the property, they give you the money, the deal is done. The contract is not broken, it's set aside. Maybe filed away somewhere, but you aren't obligated to go and pay the person again, and they're not obligated to give you more property. It's a deal, it's a contract that's completed, and because it's completed, it's set aside. And the same is true for today. So back to Peter in verse 9, as Peter goes on continuing to talk about his experience, um, in verse 9, he said, The voice answered me again from heaven. And this is, of course, God speaking. He said, What God has cleansed, do not call common or unclean. And that was done three times, just so Peter would get the point, And it was all drawn back up into heaven again. So was God teaching Peter about dietary matters, or was there a deeper application? God was telling Peter to violate a clear command of the Mosaic Law. And by implication, that confirms the fulfillment and the termination of the Mosaic Law, which occurred at Jesus' death. God gave at least two object lessons to prove that the Mosaic Law and temple worship were terminated. One was the tearing of the curtain of the Holy of Holies when Jesus died on the cross. And the other was the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. If there was any doubt about the fulfillment and therefore the setting aside of the Mosaic Law at Jesus' death, there could be no doubt after the destruction of the temple. There has never been legitimate exercise of the Mosaic Law or the temple worship since Jesus died. And of course, there never will be because it's Jesus is the only one who can fulfill it. So while Jesus lived, he was under the Mosaic Law. He was born, he lived, and he died and fulfilled the law. And he did that once, and he did that completely for all time. And in verse 11, going on with Peter, and it said, Behold, immediately there were three men already come to me, come to the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me, and the Spirit 
bade me go with them, and I did not doubt. Moreover, I took six brethren with me, and we entered into the man's house. He was only required to have two witnesses. Under Mosaic law, he took six. I have a feeling that Peter realized he was going to be called on the carpet for his actions because he knew the prejudices and the cultural um, practices of the Jews of the day because he actually held them himself. And in verse 13, he goes on, and he showed us how that he'd seen an angel in his house which stood and said to him, send to Joppa uh, and call for Simon whose surname is Peter and he will tell you words whereby you and your house shall be saved. So Cornelius was not a saved man at this time. He was what we would call a, a proselyte to Judaism. So he was a, he was a person who um, desired to please God, was a proselyte to Judaism, but was not a saved man, had not understood or heard possibly the gospel. So he will tell you words whereby you will be saved. And in verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. The beginning, of course, is Acts chapter 2, when the church was inaugurated. Um, Peter is referring in verse 16, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to me, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And that's an exact uh, quote from Acts 1.5 where Jesus told them to remain in Jerusalem. So verse 17, For as much then as God gave them the same gift as he gave to us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you notice that he said he gave them the same gift as he gave to us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, not who obeyed the Mosaic law and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, not who were circumcised and obeyed the Mosaic law and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said he gave them the same gift to us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, that's the Jewish believers who were contending with him before, when they heard these things, they held their peace. And they glorified God, saying, Then has God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. You would think the apostles would know that when Jesus told them in Matthew 28, go to all nations and preach the gospel. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And Peter, we know, still didn't get it because he was reprimanded by Paul in Galatians chapter 2 for still separating himself from Gentile believers and only associating with Jewish believers. And Paul actually reprimanded him in public. So it would take some time before these Jewish, peop- Jewish believers got the point. And if you read Acts 15 for yourself, you can see the first Jerusalem council where those very things are being talked about and their final conclusions in Acts chapter 15 was that, they're, that you don't obligate people to the Mosaic law and circumcision, etc. Um, because they themselves couldn't even keep the law themselves. So we can see then how that the great tragedy of Peter not understanding that the law of Moses was rendered inoperative and was therefore no longer a barrier between Jew and Gentile. We know from other scripture that Peter was publicly reprimanded by Paul for having a prejudicial 
uh, attitude toward Gentile believers. By not recognizing the fulfillment of the whole law by Jesus Christ at his death, evidenced by his bodily resurrection and return to heaven, Peter and the Jewish believers of Jerusalem actually withheld the gospel message from Gentiles. And that's a result of an incomplete understanding of the person and work of Christ. The old gentleman I mentioned imprisoned in the pre-revolutionary France in the tale of two cities was in bondage to a rigid and deadly regime restricting and judging his every move and even his very life. And even when released from prison and living as a free citizen in London, he would flash back to his life in prison and isolate himself to his shoemaking profession, which occupied his time in the French prison. So too believers can bind themselves to a Mosaic law, which is actually fulfilled and set aside, the scripture says abolished, rendered inoperative or annulled. Um, this laying aside of the whole law occurred because Jesus fulfilled the law completely. And therefore God says of him and him alone, he is well-pleasing. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all because it completely fulfilled all of the requirements of the Mosaic Law. And that's what allowed the Jews to trust Christ as Savior, simply on the basis of what they believe, to, uh, and be saved. And the same is true for Gentiles. Same message and the same means of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, is what Paul said to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 15, 16. However, in the same way that the old man set free from prison and now living free in London drifted in and out of a state of freedom and imprisonment depending on his particular state of mind, so believers also can be trapped by a lack of understanding regarding the completed work of Christ to the extent that we, that we might bind ourselves to a works of the law attitude in our Christian life. But this is an affront to Christ and renders his perfect work of no value if we as believers are attempting to live by not the Ten Commandments, but there are 613 in the Mosaic Law, I don't think we could even name them. But if we're obligated to one, we're obligated to them all. If we obligate ourselves to the 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law, we are stating that Jesus did not fulfill it well enough, and he needs our effort to complete the work. But the opposite is true. The Jews could never keep the law. They stated as much in Acts chapter 15. And that, by the way, is why there was a sacrificial system. It was to make up for the failure of the people to keep the law by providing um, a system of sacrifice, which according to Hebrews, reminded the people of their sin year by year in Hebrews 10.3. It did not purge the conscience of sin. However, Christ did something different. Christ's once and for all sacrifice does purge our conscience of sin by perfecting us forever, according to Hebrews 10, verses 10, 12, and 14. Hebrews is a great book to read to understand the contrast between the law and the new covenant. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, and starting in verse 10, and I'm going to hop over a few verses, so 10, 12, 14. This is the message. By God's will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once. Just one offering, 
were sanctified. By this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, he sat down because the work is done. And for by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's whoever trusts Jesus as Savior. So whether you feel it or not, you have been perfected forever. Praise the Lord for that. There are two cities mentioned in the scripture as well in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 19. Two cities in Galatians chapter 4. The book of Galatians, by the way, was written because Paul would go to a city and preach the gospel of salvation, and right behind him would come these people called Judaizers. And what would they do? They would say, oh yes, you can trust Christ as your Savior, that's fine, but you're still obligated to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. And that's why the book of Galatians was written, was to confront that heresy. And so Paul says this to the people in Galatia because he's concerned about whether they really have even trusted the Lord as Savior. Um, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and change my voice, because I stand in doubt of you. In other words, he's saying, I would rather be there and not be speaking so harshly, but I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. And these things are an allegory, for these are two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which uh, leads to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and compares to Jerusalem, which now is, as, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. Nevertheless, in verse 30, what, says, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free So then, of which city do you, do, do you and I wish to be a citizen? A city of bondage, of condemnation, and eternal death? Or a city of liberty, freedom, and eternal life? Which Jerusalem do you prefer? Jesus died to give us a gift, a city of freedom, of liberty, of eternal life. In this city of life, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to enable us that we might fulfill God's purpose of doing the good works that he before ordained that we should walk in them. He gives us the grace that says no to sin, that puts off the old man of the flesh and puts on the new man of the spirit, which confirms that if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. The spirit who declares that there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And as believers... We are under a law. Even though it's not the Mosaic law, we are under a law. We are under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which has made us free from the law of sin and death. 
the spirit who directs us not to lie to one another but to speak the truth, to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God has also forgiven you, the spirit who directs us to love our enemies and to bear one another's burdens. So we are under a law as believers. It's called the law of the spirit of life or sometimes called the law of Christ. But the Lord Jesus himself has completely fulfilled the old covenant law, the Mosaic law. And as such, as a complete entirety, it has been set aside. As the man from France did not bring French common law with him over when he went to live in England, um, neither can the believer bring the old covenant law into his new life as a believer. It's already been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore set aside. So our citizenship is our choice. I trust that we will choose our citizenship prayerfully according to God's word. Thank you.